Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I'm the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. Our sixth episode is part two of my conversation with Kayla McLaughlin, a PA with Kaiser Permanente's gender-affirming surgery team in West Los Angeles. We pick up our conversation in part two of It's the Little Things That Matter by discussing the positive experiences trans patients have had within the healthcare system, her concerns about the homicide rate of young Black and Latino trans women, and she provided advice on how healthcare professionals and non-providers can better support and advocate for the trans community. Enjoy listening to episode six. Well, Kayla, welcome back to our next episode. I'm so excited, as I'm sure our listeners are, to uh, to hear more from you today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Awesome. Well, you know, we, we landed um, our last episode by talking about some of the greatest challenges that maybe trans patients face within the healthcare system. I'd like to flip that question on its head and ask you to talk a little bit about what are some of the positive impacts that your patients experience regarding healthcare services that may differ from cisgender patients? So a very positive uh, impact for trans patients once they are able to enter a healthcare system that offers trans services is to see a lot of their issues uh, resolved and their lives really, really change. So first, with just access to hormones, um, you know, the other thing I like to tell clinicians that I'm, you know, training or teaching that if you could just prescribe one medication to somebody, and in some instances, too, if they have to take antiandrogens, mm. and that would help their, you know, quality of life, their, you know, people get off anxiety medications. Um, they really, they really change uh, in terms of their mood about themselves, that risk of suicide once someone takes, starts taking hormones that are aligned with their identity drastically decreases. Studies have even shown that once a trans person is being recognized by their closest people, so family and maybe coworkers and school and things like that, by their uh, true gender and by the name that they would like to be called, then their risk of suicide attempt and ideation decreases even then. So that's when I say like a lot of these answers are so simple and have such a huge impact. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, this surgery – it's a big goal. Um, and they work, you know, for a long time with, you know, there's requirements set forth by uh, WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, that gives us the guidelines by which we um, deliver medical care and surgical services to patients. And what that states now is basically patients have to get two letters of recommendation or of affirming that they've met the criteria uh, from either a therapist or their physician, social worker, that kind of thing. Uh, They have to have been on hormones for at least a year, being in that lived experience of that gender. Mm -hmm. So whenever they finally get to surgery day, like our patients are so excited and they're, you know, one of the few groups of people who are walking into the hospital knowing they're about to like, have this, you know, big surgery and they're so excited (laughs) and they're very, uh, yeah. And their family is excited and it's like a really big turning point in their life. And to be able to be a part of that is, is really special. I bet it is. And it's just such an, um, I guess maybe paradox, right? Cause like most people 
who are going into the hospital to have surgery are not looking forward to it, right? So what a what a completely different experience um, right. for your patients. That's fantastic. Okay, I you know I'd like to ask you a question about. Um, the homicide rates of young trans feminine black and latina individuals that seem to be at least what's what's reported frequently much higher than their cisgender comparators why do you think that's happening i think that if we even begin to discuss what is happening to trans black women in the united states in terms of violence it has to be taken on a larger scale of just what is happening to black people in the United States. Uh, a lot of trans black women, uh, you know, are at more risk of violence because they're probably put into situations where they are more likely to experience violence. So mm-hmm. one being a sex worker, uh, mm-hmm. not having steady income or housing, not having steady housing, or income, no close friends or family, uh, not having access to medical care. And also, I think it points to the bigger picture of, you know, often when trans black women are killed, it is in an act of violence from someone who was previously nonviolent. So these are people who Mm. maybe entered some sort of, um, you know, sexual relationship with women. Also, not that all trans black women who are murdered are, you know, sex workers or were involved in some kind of sex act. It's usually a lot of women who are totally unprovoked. Um, Just their existence challenges men, uh, Mm. you know, heterosexual men or maybe men who are, you know, sort of internalizing their homophobia against themselves and things like that. Um, so I think that that really points to the picture of how challenging and how deep rooted our ideas of gender and sex and sexuality are. I tell all of my patients, um, trans women that if they are, you know, I encourage them, they should have fun, happy, healthy sex lives, but, uh, you never enter a relationship, a sexual encounter with a person who doesn't know that you're trans. If you're preoperative, um, because in that moment, if that person discovers that and they feel like they were, you know, tricked or something like that, people do really, you know, wild things. And that's why it's been, you know, difficult over the last couple of years with especially like our previous um, administration really taking protections away from trans women um, Mm -hmm. because they are at such great risk. Another thing I'd like to point out is that there is a um, statistic or just this little like factoid that I've, I've seen all over the place for many years that the average life expectancy of a trans woman of color is age 35. And the reason that that is upsetting is one, because it's actually not true. Um, they don't know what the life expectancy of black trans women are. And every time I would see that statistic, I would think, gosh, like if that if that was describing me, that would be so disheartening. So I kind of like to say that, like, I've done a really deep dive on where that number has come from. And other people have agreed that, like, there is no actual data or study that supports that. And I think that that's great because (laughs) that that. It is not a dismal number. And also, just like with my experience, I've been seeing trans patients for like seven years now, and many, many of them, and many, many of them are, 
you know, some of the most interesting, industrious, uh, like amazing people. And when we think of trans people, we often think of what's being portrayed to us or the people, the trans people who have gotten visibility, um, sort of like your Caitlyn Jenner's and that kind of thing. But there are many people who are having very different experiences. Um, All trans people are valuable. It doesn't matter how easily you're able to transition, you know, quote unquote, passing, how much surgery you're able to have and that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that when we talk particularly about black women, black trans women, that is the group that, you know, I think the LGBT community as a whole needs to speak loudest for. Yeah. You know, Kayla, where did that 35 years of um, age expectancy number come from? I don't know. It was, so there's Trans Day of Remembrance, um, which I'm forgetting the actual date, but since then, so there's Trans Day of Remembrance where, you know, we take the time to mourn the loss of the people, of the trans people who were lost to violence or one reason or another. Um, and I think that it's sort of this, like, I don't know if the correct word is like trauma porn, but eventually I think the trans community was like sick of all of the visibility being about, you know, how sad and and destitute Mm. their their lives are. And, you know, now we have trans day of visibility or, you know, and we're celebrating more trans, like trans joy and LGBT joy instead of just, um, which it all matters, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just knowing like, like I was saying, like whenever I was a kid, no one ever modeled to me that I could have, you know, gone to, that I could have become a lawyer, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm a white person and I had like a lot of opportunity and to think of, you know, if you're trying to see yourself reflected back and everything that's coming towards you from the media is that, you know, there's anti-political groups specifically against you and there are laws being you know, formulated specifically against you and Mm -hmm. that, you know, you might only live to be 35. And, you know, so I try to just say that, like, it's not that bleak, you know, it gets better and it can be better. And I also think that those numbers and those statistics are a way to try to tell trans people to try to signal to them that, like, this is what you're destined to have or to be. And it's not true. Right. So why bother? Right. Mm-hmm. Why, why have any aspirations or try to um, believe that you can have, um, you know, some semblance of, of, of a good life when you're going to die by the time you're 35? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense, but is really scary at the same time. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and just ask you in general about uh, your thoughts regarding underserved populations. How do you think the healthcare system could improve its service to um, better support underserved populations in general? Well, probably many, many ways. (laughs) Uh, One would be just making healthcare more accessible and more affordable to populations um, in different corners of the United States while, you know, honoring their culture and, uh, you know, them as a person. I also think education, uh, you know, there was a recent study that showed that something like 40% of medical students believe that black people have different skin 
than white people, that they don't, um, that they respond quicker to pain medication, uh, things that just like are completely not true. There are people who are, you know, becoming doctors and, and decision makers and lawyers and things like that who are of the belief that that different races are are genetically different from yeah. other, that we're not all human <laughs> beings. Yeah. Uh, there is no genetic difference from one person to the next in terms of like their physiology, um, their anatomy, uh, and it just doesn't matter. So I think that whenever you teaching people that, you know, black people are more likely to have hypertension because of, you know, socioeconomic conditions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, what you're really saying is that because of racism, they're more likely to have these diseases because they don't have the same access to care or they don't have the same food options or they don't have the same opportunities for employment. You know, yeah. our our healthcare system is based on whether or not you have a job. Yeah, if you're unable to have access to work, then you unfortunately don't have health care. And we also know that continuity of care is very important. You know, back in the day, mm-hmm. someone would have one physician their whole life. I grew up with one doctor who treated everyone in my family and because I saw her, you know, every time I was sick for 20 years, that that's something special. And if, you know, you do have a health care, a health condition that, you know, you're getting treatment here and there from a different person um, each time, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not That's not how our system is supposed to take care of people. We should be in the business of preventing illness of helping people live their best lives, not just, you know, getting by. Yeah. So I think that, you know, training people who are working in healthcare to be a little bit more uh, educated and sensitive to different cultures. I mean, also with sex and stuff in general, I just read something about how in most medical textbooks, the words, uh, you know, penis and testicles are mentioned, you know, hundreds of times whenever they're describing Mm. those body parts. But, you know, like clitoris and vulva and, you know, uterus even, like very medical parts of your body aren't, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like just a a handful of times. And I'm not lying when I say that, you know, I've had phone calls or just discussions with like medical doctors who don't don't know about sex or anatomy or STIs or how things how those things work. Um, So just, you know, getting everybody sort of on the same page that you're supposed to be the blank slate. The patient is supposed to bring their experience to you and you mirror that and, you know, take the information that they've given you to, to benefit them, not yeah. to, you know, project back onto them your thoughts and beliefs and then allow that to affect their care. That's like the antithesis of medicine. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why mm-hmm. I think now it's great. I've been very busy, you know, doing a lot of education uh, to different med schools, doctors, uh, PA programs, that kind of stuff. And people are really engaged because they really don't know a lot of this stuff and they don't have a safe space to ask, like, you know, there are times whenever I'm pointing out the new anatomy for a trans female patient and their parent may be in the room and they're unsure of their mm-hmm. own anatomy, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, we're talking about adults and it's important. <sighs> we should know these things, just removing the shame. There's no, sh- there's no, there's no reason for any of any the shame that's a lot of um, things that make a person unique. Oh, yeah, isn't that the truth? I mean, shame doesn't get us anywhere 
about anything. Um, and, you know, you, you started off answering the question by mentioning that healthcare should become more accessible to underserved populations. And a, a couple of episodes ago, I was talking with our guest, um, Dr. Yolanda Becker, and uh, we talked a little bit about the same idea. And she mentioned that we, we, in our country anyway, need to do a better job of actually bringing the healthcare to people. What do you think of that idea? And do you have any thoughts on like how, I mean, is that, is that doable? Could we do that? Bring it to yeah. people instead of expecting people to come to it? Well, an experience that I can think about with that is uh, whenever I was doing a rotation at a homeless shelter in Pittsburgh, you know, we have our brick and mortar sort of building that the patients would come to, but you have to get them to come there. Uh, so there was also a mobile clinic that would actually like go out to different homeless encampments and deliver care sort of on the spot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anyone who's participated in something like that knows how beneficial that is right away. I mean, you're meeting people where they are, literally, um, you're removing barriers to healthcare, which is, you know, just the transportation in general. Um, you know, at some hospitals, if you park your car, you have to you know, pay the whole time it's there, and then you have a copay, um, just eliminating, eliminating all of these sort of, you know, checks. And I, I think that would be fantastic. Different, you know, community groups going into different Yeah. yeah. Um, and also with telehealth, that makes it a little bit easier in some sense to reach some people. But also knowing that, uh, you know, I'm from rural Pennsylvania, can be considered Appalachia. There are mm -hmm. huge parts of that area of the country that don't have broadband Wi-Fi. Like they do mm -hmm. not have access to internet. Um, and I think that with COVID and a lot of people having to scramble, especially with like online education, uh, one of my patients, she was actually like an IT person for an elementary school and she was working on how to get mobile hotspots for children who were going to be using school distributed uh, laptops or iPads, but like they, they live in a car. So, like, they don't have a Wi-Fi system. And sure, that happens sure. to children in the United States. Like, there's – and we're, we're, I'm in L.A. Like, I can only imagine – and we, like, meaning that there's a lot of resources and stuff. But mm -hmm. people who are in areas that don't have a community center or an LGBT center or some sort of group um, that's looking out for those patients. But, yeah, I definitely think that sort of going out into those spaces would be fantastic. Yeah, it would. And, and your ideas are, are fantastic as well. Because again, true, true to your commitment that you that you gave during our first episode, you know, it's it's the basics, it's the little things that 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 need to be removed in order to make things more accessible. That's great. Great thoughts. Affinity Strategies is a full service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. All right, Kayla, we are down to our last 
couple of questions here for you. And, you know, I know we've talked quite a bit so far about your thoughts regarding how healthcare providers could improve upon the way in which they treat trans and non-binary patients. I'm just wondering if you might be able to give us maybe two or three of kind of your your top um, items of advice on that front. Yeah, if I was talking to a clinician about how to improve their experience or how to improve their capacity. So talking to a clinician about, you know, how they will interface with a trans patient and how to make that the best experience for the patient and also to, uh, you know, make it an effective appointment. One would just be to recognize that as a healthcare provider, you definitely are a leader and you're setting the tone for your staff. So making sure that, um, you know, Sometimes you have to speak up for your patients in terms of, you know, saying the unpopular opinion or telling someone like, you know, that's you're being insensitive. Uh, One thing is if you know that you're going to have trans people in your practice as part of your patients, training your staff on trans sensitivity. So electronic medical records pose a really tough situation a lot of the times because we have to go by legal documents in terms of insurance. So someone may enter the hospital and be checking in for an appointment and the person who's like opening their chart and, you know, making sure they get to their appointment, this person might not be a medical person at all in terms of um, their their role, but they're representing your practice. And if that person, um, you know, in our medical record, we use Epic, they ha- there's been a lot of uh, change in terms of, you know, listing someone's non-legal name, but like the name that they go by or their non-legal sex, preferred sex and, and preferred pronouns. And we train all of our patients to, or all of our staff to you know, look for those in the chart. And if a patient has those listed, then that's what you're going to, going to use. The same way that if somebody, if their legal name is Christopher and they want to go by Chris, you know, that's been an option in, in healthcare systems for a long time. Um, so sort of just making sure that the basics there are met. And that's what I mean when I say like affirming their gender during the experience. So, you know, if someone comes into your office and the first person that they see is going to call them by what's called their dead name. So the name that they were assigned at birth um, that can be a very dysphoria triggering event. And that person is not going to enter that space with you feeling safe. Um, whether or not their reaction to that misgendering is, um, you know, large or small, it still signals to them that they're an other and, or that they're not being seen as their, as for who they are. Um, and then two would be to, you know, when you see the patient kind of go in, just be humble, have humility. And, um, you know, I, when I introduce myself, I'll often say my pronouns or, and I'll give the patient an opportunity to say their pronouns. You often also like don't have to use pronouns when you're talking to a person. (laughs) It's sort of like if you're talking about a person, Um, just making sure that maybe if you're not sure what to use, being a little bit more like judicious with your language and, you know, avoiding gendered words in that sense. Since we're a surgery department and I talk to people about their genitals, um, I avoid using words like vagina or penis. I generally just say genitals um, or your anatomy. I also don't name their genitals in terms of like that they belong to them. So I wouldn't say like to a trans female patient who's coming in to have a vaginoplasty, meaning all of the 
you know, the phallus is removed and scrotum and testicles. I wouldn't say like, we're going to remove your penis and your testicles. Um, I sort of other them in a way like the, we'll, we'll remove the anatomy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then the other thing is basically just like being sensitive to the fact that, um, you know, if you have to do a physical exam, that's not often something that, you know, being naked um, in front of other people isn't very comfortable for most people, but for trans people who may have a very significant dysphoria about their body, having these places examined is really difficult. So for example, I had a trans male patient once he was street homeless, so meaning like he was kind of resisting going to a shelter, which is often true for trans people because once you enter a shelter, you're often like split up in men versus women, and that's what bathroom you're going to use and that kind of stuff. Um, and he was having a rash in his genitals, and he went to see a clinician at the place where I was working, and I saw that he was prescribed Nystatin cream, which is like probably what I would have prescribed too, with, but knowing that this person has gender dysphoria and significantly genital dysphoria, he came back saying, like, there's no possible way I could put it, I could smear a cream all over myself. Like, I can barely look at myself in the shower. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after talking with this person, realizing that, you know, they have been sexually active as a way for survival, um, have not had any, you know, pap smear or pelvic exam or anything like that, and over the course of maybe like four or five visits, I we worked together to get him comfortable to lie down in an exam table with his feet, you know, in the dorsal lithotomy position so I could do the exam. But the very first day, we just practiced like him sitting on the exam table. Um, and then the next time, like we, we laid it down. And then the third time was when he got undressed wearing a gown. But none of those times did I actually examine him. And I had the luxury of time at that point. And I know a lot of people can't be like, oh, my God, I could never see someone four times <laughs> or I actually examine them. Like, are you kidding me? But, um, you know, not necessarily to that degree, but just knowing, like, letting a patient get dressed before you continue the conversation. Yeah. Uh, letting them get off of the table if you're done with the exam, uh, those kinds of things. And just, yeah, just considering, just considering mm-hmm. them. And then the third thing would be just to sort of... Um, limit the questions that you ask them about being trans. So if it's something specific to them, obviously, like you're getting your um, history and physical and that kind of stuff. But if they say a word that you maybe don't understand, um, you know, if it feels like it would make sense in the conversation and you're having an open conversation, then like maybe ask, but don't don't task that patient with explaining things to you that you can go Google when they leave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Don't rely on them to educate you. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's such great advice, Kayla. I have one more question, advice related, by the way. What would you like our listeners to know or understand about their own role in supporting the trans community? What I would like people to know is that supporting the trans community supports all of us. Because imagine if we could, as a culture and as a society truly accept gender nonconformity and honor people who are living that experience, how that would open the doors for all of us to challenge our own ideas of gender and sex and stereotypes. If, if men could accept and 
like not feel guilty for being emotional or vulnerable mm-hmm. if women didn't have to feel, you know, that they were complying with a beauty standard, how freeing that would be for all of us. Um, and more specifically that, you know, the children that we're raising, how they can truly change their ideas of what a person should and shouldn't be. And, um, you know, like I have two little kids, they're two and four. And when they get gifts and stuff from family members, if it's clothes, like I, you know, just the other day, like this dress came from my daughter and my son was like, you know, really attracted to the material because it's like shiny and pretty and he's two. Um, and I'm like, am I really going to like take this dress away from him? Like, (laughs) that's very silly. But then it's like, you look at the, look at the, uh, clothes and it's like, and, and, you know, like I said, like I'm in LA and we've come a long way in terms of this, but there's still a lot more to go, but like boys clothes, like they have dinosaurs and bears and like explorers and like those kinds of things. And the colors are always like blue and brown and black and the girls clothes are so different. And if you really stop and think about when I'm like looking at these two little kids, I'm like, it would be so silly of me to tell them that they had to wear one or the other, or that this color makes more sense because you're a boy. Um, I mean, it's, it would be impossible for someone who's like spent as much time with trans people as I have to really like kind of think about this stuff. Like even myself as a woman, like, what does that mean? What, what was predetermined for me based on those just, you know, facts about my body. Um, and that if we really sort of, you know, scale out a little bit and just see that all of us are people, all of us want to be happy and be authentic to ourselves. If we allow people who challenge that idea to a lot of people, you know, being trans, if we allow those people to thrive and exist without it being an act of bravery, um, then that really sort of blows things wide open for everybody else. It does, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you just think about if if so much of of the of the stress and that's just the work I think that goes into sort of just denying the trans community, you know, the rights that they that they deserve, what we could do with that energy instead of working so hard to tamp it down. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I think all the time. Like when you see people so passionately angry, anger can be very useful if it's directed towards a good cause. But, you know, I just really feel sympathy for those people. And I think that they just must be in so much pain. Yeah, I think that you're right. They must be. But you and your colleagues are doing incredible work. And I... I applaud you. You are just doing such amazing, amazing things. And I am really looking forward to seeing what you all will be up to next. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay. So we are at the point of our episode where it is actually one of my favorite times and it is the lightning round. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yes. All right. All right, Kayla. 
describe yourself in three words. Let's say mom, Gemini, hillbilly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great combo. <laughs> yes. All right. Your favorite day of the week? Saturday. And why Saturday? Because it's the start of when I do a lot of like projects at home. So like gardening mm -hmm. or just like being with the kids um, and knowing I have also nothing the next day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's a great feeling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. What was the last song you downloaded? Army of Me by Bjork. Oh, are you even kidding me? I could go on <laughs> and on about Bjork. I will save that for another conversation, but that's fantastic. Wholeheartedly agree with that choice. Um, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? This is hard to decide because I feel like animals would be so new, but I don't know if they'd have like that much practical information. I don't know. I'm going to choose language. Okay. Every <laughs> All right. All right. Favorite junk food? Pizzeria pretzel combos. Whew, that sounds lovely. Uh, ask for permission or forgiveness? Forgiveness. Ah, good work. What is the most boring thing ever? The stock market. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you cracked me up. If it is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, my goodness. How many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? I'd say, I think several, several. Several? <laughs> Do you have a few allergies maybe? No, but I was just reading about how like if you're, if you're performing or if you're doing something where like it gets a lot of your attention, your body will actually like suppress a sneeze. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's like so rare that like Celine Dion would be on stage and like <laughs> You know, <laughs> or like the two of us just chatting away, right? Like, yeah, we, yeah, we wouldn't, exactly. we wouldn't be sneezing in the middle of it. Huh, yeah. <laughs> that's very, that's very interesting. What is the fastest you've ever driven a car? Uh, probably less than a hundred, maybe like ninety, maybe just ninety. I don't know. Okay, all right, all right. That's about you know, kind of middle of the road answers I've been getting. <laughs> on, on that on that question uh what's for dinner tonight we are going to have burgers i think oh sounds oh, good very very american yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes perfect for a uh wednesday night right mm -hmm. uh dawn or dusk dawn nice is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers in principle yes <laughs> I can't tell you how many people have like just straight up given of uh, a serious answer to that question. <laughs> oh, your comeback was funny. Who do you admire? I admire my first instinct is to say Paul McCartney. Um, 
I love mm-hmm. him a lot. I always have. But what I admire is that he's sort of um, viciously positive and joyful. <laughs> Sometimes yes. to like a point of annoyance, but it's, you know, he's dedicated and uh, I enjoy his personality a lot. Yeah, that's, um, first of all, a great answer. Love the Beatles myself. And secondly, I, I just love how you two have kind of honed in on his eternal uh, positivity. And I have to believe that's a big reason why he is as successful as he is. That's awesome. Yeah, he's like un- universally appealing. He really is. He really is. What are you currently reading? I'm reading the biography of Cleopatra. Oh, is it good? Very good. It's very good. He's very, very mysterious, but also a lot um, of of truth about her has been sort of twisted to, um, you know, fit a sort of mystique that, uh, you know, kind of, you know, in in femininity, femininity and masculinity that a lot of her allure and mysticism and that kind of stuff was sort of you know, man's historical telling of how a woman could be so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So really getting into how she was a political leader. She was beloved by her people. Um, Yeah. She was really great. And she lived so recently. She was born or she died only like 50 years before the birth of, you know, for the birth birth of Christ. Yeah. Um, which I thought was like, oh, I thought she lived like 5,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so, oh, wow. Well, I'm going to have to look into that. That sounds fascinating. All right. Last lightning round question. What is your dream job other than the one you currently have? I would say to be a botanist or biologist in some way and like, study one plant or one super specific animal like my whole life and like live like live in you know uh, the redwoods or something studying like one kind of bird forever (laughs) oh yeah that sounds like that could be so interesting and and consuming right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh that's awesome well Kayla I really want to thank you for um, spending time with me and, um, of course, answering all my questions and, most of all, sharing your knowledge and wisdom and your great advice. Thanks a million. And really, I am truly, truly honored to have gotten to know you a little bit and uh, better understand the great work that you and your colleagues are doing. Yeah, thank you. You're so welcome. It's uh, definitely my true passion. Um, I love educating and learning more about this and talking about this. Um, I think that we'll probably like have some of my information at the end of the episode, but anybody, you know, uh, aspiring student or clinician or anything like that who wants information about this kind of stuff, just go ahead and hit me up. <laughs> That's Fantastic. We'll be sure to put um, that information in in our show notes for, for both episodes. Thank you. You bet. Thanks so much, Kayla. Wow. These were a couple of amazing episodes with Kayla McLaughlin. 
This was the first time we had back-to-back episodes with the same guest, and I hope that the content with Kayla did not disappoint. When I was reflecting upon the important information Kayla discussed and the inspiring stories she shared, admittedly, it was a tall task to distill it into two to three learnings. I really hope I've done justice to the conversations. First, Kayla's approach to the care of her trans patients is creative. As evidenced by her stories of treating trans patients, she goes above and beyond just talking about hormone treatments and and surgery. She takes the time to peel back the onion, so to speak, and dig into the complexities that her patients may be experiencing in order to give them the very best care she can. Second, the healthcare challenges the trans community face are indeed great. However, Kayla and her colleagues at the Gender Affirming Surgery Team are diligent about not overlooking the simple barriers that could prevent their patients from seeking healthcare and finding solutions. Last and certainly not least, Kayla provided some straightforward advice on what we all can do, irrespective of whether you are a healthcare provider, to respect an individual's personhood. She points out that no matter what you look like or who you have sex with or what gender norms you may or may not follow, we all deserve respect. It is such a simple statement yet seems to be so complicated for some folks. Oh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Kayla does some excellent myth-busting. She not only debunks stereotypes that continue to plague underserved populations, but she also reveals misunderstandings that continue to be perpetuated by healthcare providers. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and music from Caleb Justinger, Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Claire Vincent.